0: And welcome back to Real Clear with Dr. Klein, the crossroads of politics and psychology. If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money, and so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy this next episode. Josh Slocum, I'm not sure who should introduce our episode today because we're going to be using it for dual purposes. But welcome to Real Clear. It's a pleasure to have you on. I've been wanting to talk with you for some time.
1: Thank you, Lucas. And I suppose since we are using it for dual purposes, welcome to Disaffected. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: <laughs> so I for listeners of Real Clear who may not be familiar with you, I caught on to your podcast called Disaffected a few months ago. And instantly I thought, this guy is brilliant. Your witticisms and subtle observations of society blew my mind. For everyone who's listening, Josh has, he has this voice he does, and he may grace us with it today, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Where you basically caricature and cartoonize various cluster B people in society and wokesters and snowflakes and so on. And I just think that those Things that you do on Disaffected are actually, I know you mean them to be humorous, but I think you also mean them to be informative about a number of things. I I (laughs) do mean both of those (laughs) things. Yeah. I mean, they really are. Role-playing and characterizing various people and and players in society is actually a very powerful display. Josh, you specialize in identifying and consulting people, actually, in your consulting practice on cluster B personalities in their own lives, how to notice them, how to deal with them in a relational sense. And while this may uh, classically be considered the province of a psychotherapist like myself or a psychoanalyst like myself, I actually think that your take on this is probably better than 99% of therapists out there in the modern world. So can you fill in the audience for what is cluster B? And tell us your thoughts on this in a nutshell, if you could.
1: Sure. Th- thank you. I'll have a question for you after I, uh, after I say this. Because I'm really, it's, I was really pleased to get your email and for us to be introduced to each other. Because obviously I'm interested in talking with professionals. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychoanalyst. I do not have a degree in, in anything in the mental health field. So I'm, all right. So I'm going to say the question so I don't forget it. Then I'm going to answer your question. And the question that I'm going to ask you is for you to characterize the take of the 99% of people in the field, how you see their understanding and their explanation. I I don't know how familiar uh, I would imagine that your audience, uh, your listenership is probably has people who are tend to be more in the know about mental health things than less. Um, But for what it's worth, um, we're talking about the way I describe this. Personality disorders generally. My description is that they are a type of mental illness that is unlike the things that generally come to mind for the average person when they hear the term mental illness. I would guess that the average person thinks of things like major depression, anxiety disorders, they might, schizophrenia might come to mind, manic depression, what is now called bipolar, uh, and we'll get into that because there's a lot of, maybe we will, there's a lot of confusion in that one. But and, and I'm speaking generally, and there are a lot of there are a lot of ways that this will not apply in specifics. I cannot and do not give caveats at each stage of what I say. So I ask people to understand that I do understand I'm speaking generally and this doesn't apply to 100 percent of all cases and that there is overlap. Um, but if, if we to simplify it, if you think of a friend who is a depressive, who has recurring bouts of depression, you might think of Jill as she might be a, a warm, bubbly person, an engaging person who's easy to socialize with. And then when the depression cloud, when the black dog comes, it, you Jill is being oppressed under a cloud that is keeping her, her real self from rising to the top, right? She's burdened by this. Personality disorders aren't quite the same way. Anxiety comes and goes. Depression comes and goes. But personality disorders are what they are what what the name says they are they are disorders of personality it's ingrained it's at a very deep level and to rise to the level of we all the traits that make up personality the disorder traits most of them we will all experience with at some point the difference is that Having a personality disorder means that these traits are so deeply ingrained, and they are displayed across domains in one's life—romantically, um, uh, with children, in work situations, church, social, etc. Um, and I like to talk about the older term, character disorders. We don't like that. We moderns we don't like that at all because we don't like to admit that there is such a thing as character, because that means that we would have to admit that some people. Bad character to a close approximation. Great many people who could be described as having Cluster B personality disorders have bad character. So, what are the Cluster B personality disorders? So, American America, the American system divides up the personality disorders into three clusters: clusters A, B, and C. I'm concerned only with Cluster B. Cluster B is called the dramatic and erratic personality disorders. They include borderline personality, narcissistic personality, histrionic personality, and antisocial personality. And antisocial is what most people will know colloquially as either or sociopathy or psychopathy. And yes, I also understand that there, there are people right now who just heard that, who are furiously typing to correct me that a psychopath is born, but a sociopath is made. Granted, granted. There is not actually, there's not consensus agreement on that. So I tend to use them interchangeably. These are people, these are the people in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, on your television screen, in your phone, on Twitter, in politics, in media. Social
0: media was made for these folks.
1: Absolutely. It's social media is so conducive to this kind of bad behavior that it draws out narcissistic and emotionally manipulative behavior, even from normal range people who would not qualify as personality disordered. It, it, it encourages
0: the unfettered discharge of aggression. Yes. Right? And that's yes. so
1: grown from people who are in the cluster B. Right. How to how so in my view, and I want another thing I'm interested in with this, Lucas, is I do hope that to the degree that you disagree with me, and you think that my Analysis is underpowered or underinformed. Push back, enlighten me. I believe that. So ostensibly, there are four cluster B personality disorders. I just named them. My position now is that while there are many people that we can look at who we can say they look mostly like a borderline or they look mostly like a narcissist, that actually what's what's real and identifiable is a frame of mind that we call cluster B but that most people in there have a helping of traits for many of the different disorders and in different think, combinations.
0: Yeah, Josh, I actually think you're spot on there. And it's the first time I, he- I heard it put that way was from you. And I think it's true. In fact, it's the system already attests that you're correct by putting them
1: in a cluster. And right. yes, and, and so why are they in that cluster, right? What is it that binds them together? Some people disagree with me very strongly on this, but I believe that a fundamental narcissism is one of the binding common characteristics among I took the words out of my
0: mouth. I was going right? to say that I was going to say narcissism is the glue.
1: Yes, and narcissism takes many different forms. The one that we that most people are are most easily able to identify, of course, is the easy kind, the grandiose narcissist. Right. And sorry, folks, we're going to get political here. Take actually, I'm going to use two two former presidents to illustrate the the two major faces of narcissism: Donald Trump. In my view, Donald Trump is a classic grandiose narcissist. I do not believe that he is an evil Machiavellian dictator the way I used to believe. I am a former leftist and a former wokey. I have repented, but I was one of the people that we're going to be talking about. But he's easy to see. He's like a movie character, Doshio. I'm the biggest, I'm the best, I got the most beautiful bitches. I he's got like a the- rap song. Oh. Right, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm rolling in with my with my blank dole. <laughs> <laughs> and right on the beat yeah um uh that's easy to see the braggart the vainglorious has the best of everything tells you he has the best of everything contrast that with barack obama who i believe is also a clinical level narcissist but he is what i would call a covert narcissist i love that you can say
0: all this stuff because as i can't diagnose people i've never assessed in public but you can
1: because you don't have a license in this stuff, which is we can get to that because I have a big complaint that I call the don't diagnose complaint. But Barack Obama is much more urbane. He's more educated. He is a smoother talker. He presents himself as altruistic, big hearted, very broad minded, very competent. But that disguises what I believe is a, uh, and I will go so far as to say, I believe he's a narcissist, and I also believe he has sociopathic traits. I think he is grasping and Machiavellian, and that it, but the covert narcissist, which is sometimes also called a vulnerable narcissist or a communal narcissist, there's overlap here, uh, is ascendant in our society, and it is easier to disguise yourself as a saintly figure. So true. So, yeah, that's how I explain personality disorders to people. And how do you see it? The way you've put
0: it is right in line with my thinking. And in terms of your question for me, which is how would I describe the 99% of therapists with respect to personality disorders and treatment and so forth? I'm being a little bit outlandish by saying 99%. I'm just trying to give the audience the feel, the general feel that Most therapists are not capable of treating personality disorders. Most therapists are not untrained in that domain of treatment at all and unwilling and unable to treat personality disorders. I'll tell you why principally, I think you were actually getting at this when you called them character disorders, because they have refused. Modern psychotherapy has totally moved on from considering immorality as a major feature maybe even the central feature of treating personality disorders. They are, by definition, in an interpersonal sense, disorders of interpersonal
1: morality. Thank you. I sum that up. My own therapist, I don't think he quite believes me because he continually pushes me in this direction, but I'm already there. I, they are not medical, they are moral. Yes, that's right. And I think at one point in the
0: classification system a w- long while ago, I think they were called, there was an inadequate personality disorder, the DSM.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Me Me too. I have my own
0: strains of that. It's a silly catch-all, but I think they were trying to get at that there's something missing. And uh, and at one point, I think there there was actually something along the lines of an immorality clause to personality disorders in the DSM, but I, I can't remember that far back. Um, If you go
1: back even farther, if you go back to the 19th century literature, when when the idea of a field that came to be called psychiatry or psychology was nascent and forming. Yeah, everybody, you're going to get cat here. Uh, That's that's just what happens. I am. I have CPD cat personality disorder. (laughs) One of the original terms for such people was moral insanity. That's
0: right. Yes, that's right. And I think that's so much. That's over the top for the times, but it's closer to the truth than where we are now. If you right. think of the mind as having psychic structures like Freud did, mm-hmm. and then you consider so id, ego, superego, id largely being concerned with our desires and gratification of our instincts and so forth, sex and aggression being foremost amongst them, although people like Mark Soms would expand that to be many other things. And then you consider the the ego to to be the self, the rational observing agency of the mind, and then the superego is largely the area of the mind concerned with social connection and sublimation and restraint and so on. We have a problem in personality disorders where th- that part of the mind that's called the rational in, in with respect to restraining the desire for gratification is limited. It, it's really quite limited. And yep. so in, in this sense, if you consider the mind to be the interpersonalization of psychic structures, let's put it that way, Okay. then the way that personality disorders, the cluster Bs that you're talking about, show up in the world is that the way that they interpersonalize their mind is to display that unrestraint, that non-cognitive filtering before they lash out and so forth. And this does take the form of an immorality. It really does. And in psychotherapy, One of the ways that this commonly comes out with people who are more or less severely narcissistic, sometimes antisocial, if you're trying to treat someone who's antisocial, that's contestable, whether that's even doable. But someone who's severely narcissistic is that they will constantly not pay. That's one of the hallmarks. They they won't pay your fee. They will not. They will find This is the lore in, in psychotherapy. It's commonly talked about. It's one of the main indicators of severe narcissistic problems and vulnerabilities in someone is that they will find ways, often very subtly, to make you think that uh, everything's fine financially but will not pay the fee. And, and then you'll be going over your notes and, and your billings for the month and realize, wow, how did this bill get so high? And, uh, and then realize,
1: wow, something's happened here. And And then then the narcissistic patient will come back and say, why are you charging so much? The bill wouldn't be so high if you weren't charging so much. It often does
0: end up in quite an explosion. You're right, Josh. And one of the interesting things is that that moment that leads up to the recognition that you've been exploited as a professional is so often so subtle that it just it flies underneath your radar. Yeah. although most therapists will then retrospectively admit they knew something wasn't right on the way leading up to the explosion Th-
1: that's, that picks up on two two things I'd like to talk to you about. One, and maybe we put a pin in this intuition i'm a, a very, I'm very interested in um, getting people to think about their intuition um, and being able to to analyze their intuition and to trust it in certain scenarios because intuition, gut feeling, and I don't mean this on a metaphysical level. I propose nothing like telepathy. I'm talking about, I believe that intuition is a very good guide to character. That gut feeling that you get about people is not, it's not perfect, but it is usually telling us something true and useful, at least in a general way. And intuition is just a word that we use for The mind synthesis of actual sensory data, you're getting tone of voice, you're getting visuals, you're getting scent, you're getting timing, you're getting all these things. That's real objective data from the physical world. Um, But your mind is synthesizing it into something. You can't necessarily write the recipe out, but you're saying, I'm not going to stand close enough for her to reach me physically, or I'm not going to give my phone number to this guy. I'm going to walk away. Uh, I'm not going to join a project here. That's one thing. But the other is, I would, I'm very curious about your view on this as a working professional. There's great disagreement about the treatability of cluster B personality disorders. And, and I have an ongoing conversation with my therapist, in full disclosure, psychodynamic, very informed by Freud, but it's not actually classical psychoanalysis as you practice. My therapist is old school. He is not a cobbler. He's, he's very not woke. Yes. But we have gone back and forth many times and he's moved me in his direction and I've moved in his direction, but I'm not sure where I'm going to land. The trick, how treatable are cluster B personality disorders? Because my general sense is, and I say this to people and you've seen it on my show. And I, and I say to people, yes, depending on The person themselves and the kind of disorder they have, the the helping of traits that they have, some are more treatable than others. And I would say that borderline personality disorder, the purer it is, the farther away it is from narcissism and from even secondary psychopathic traits, which I believe occurs a lot more in borderline than people talk about. The more purely borderlines and histrionics, I can see having a much better chance of a successful mitigation or recovery than the more purely narcissistic of the sociopathic. But that is relative. That is comparing the group within itself. As compared to other things, These, I still believe these are very difficult to successfully treat. And I think that in order for that to happen, several things have to come together that don't often come together. The person has to be willing and able to hear that the problem is coming from inside and not from outside, that, which is really hard to do. I have some personal experience with that. They also have to be with a clinician who understands. The, these, these disorders are largely, there's always genetic component to everything, but the environmental component is usually early childhood trauma, abuse. But I do say to people, that conjunction of having a really informed therapist who's not going to indulge the borderline behaviors, is not going to coddle them, or frankly, as many contemporary practitioners do, actually concretizes them and yes. validates them, Right. then they have a chance. The younger you are when you get into that therapy, the more of a chance you have. But when I, I'm dealing with people, I'm speaking broadly on my show, but when I deal with people in my consulting practice, I tell them, listen, listen if your your husband's fifty five years old he's a big narcissist, very little chance that he's going to change very little there are some narcissists maybe that have recovered fully, and there are some borderlines who have recovered, but it's unlikely to be your borderline or your narcissist and certainly I, I, I'm, and i am and i'm so I'm afraid it's just statistically true
0: no nah, you'' know? you're, you're, you're you're correct josh you''re're so, you're, 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 you're well, so just, intuitive about this this stuff it's on. Unc- um
1: Tell me, tell me how it looks to you. What, how do you assess the treatability of these well, disorders? And I realize they're
0: not all the same. Where you started off is exactly where I would have started off. If you have people who are severely antisocial, as opposed to people who have antisocial strains and tendencies, then they're not treatable. And we know this. You, you can't treat inmates in prison. And I used to try as a psychologist in a correctional facility. Cannot be done. A story for another time is America's naive belief that the criminals in our justice system are somehow these poor attachments for injustice, yet you've never sat in front of a, a gang member in a prison on the Mexican border like I have. You would run for your life. The people out there across the thin blue line, the people who are truly antisocial would, uh, would scare the daylights out of you. Uh, they about not specific- the heavily narcissistic? How do you see those? Heavily narcissistic? is there is somewhat of a debate going on, has been going on in the field of analysis for some time. The theoretical line to be treating that type of individual is Otto Kernberg. And he synthesizes a psychiatrist, who I believe still practices in his clinic up in Montefiore. He must be quite elderly now. Yes, he is. I actually don't know if he's still practicing. But he is the person who synthesized and grouped all of the various theories on narcissism into a treatment modality, um, and he typically takes on people or at least people who adopt his theory typically take on people who are more severe. That being said, I think people who are severely narcissistic to the point that they are psychologically bludgeoning others and so forth, to put it that way, and exploiting to a great degree discharge aggression tremendously to the extent that they're really taking a massive toll on others. I think most psychologists tend to believe that type of individual is not optimal for treatment. Let me put it that way. Um,
1: and how would you characterize, and in, perhaps you wouldn't, but in my mind, the borderlines and histrionics are, are kissing cousins or even fraternal yes. twins. And so, sometimes I think it's impossible to discern, and I think it's not accurate to say, oh, she's a borderline, definitely, or she's a histrionic, definitely. I think there's a lot of overlap there. What would you say about those two? In my experience,
0: people who are heavily borderline and histrionic, you're absolutely right that they cannot have severe narcissistic problems in order to be well treated. They have to be able to self-observe to some extent. I've treated a fair number of borderline personality disordered patients who you, you wouldn't think of as maybe classical in in the system, you would, they would strike you as genuinely being able to observe the difficulty that they have with being borderline. That type of individual can be treated very well and to good effect. But you also can't believe as a psychotherapist that it's going to, that person is just perfectly able to self-observe and everything's all good. You're just going to talk about the issues and things will resolve as in a general psychotherapy. That's not how it works. There are boundary diffusion issues. There are subtle self-state shifting where the, a person will take on an as-if character and so forth, concealing uh, in a private lacuna, if I could put it that way, the pathology in order to make sure that it is not changed and taken from them because they often view it unconsciously as a the only path to preserving the self that they have. There is So there's various complex, minute issues in in the treatment like that. And also, obviously, as we were talking about before, the moral dilemma that is central to all personality disorders, especially in cluster B, has to be dealt with bravely on behalf of the therapist. You cannot roll over and simply provide endless supportive therapy that is going to leave you totally vanquished and it's not going to help your patient. Can these things, can these people be treated? Yes, under the right circumstances and under the right auspices of treatment. But I think that now what's going on is that a a huge number of people who could be classified as cluster B in various ways are are being given this kind of quasi-false treatment in psychotherapy. It's just this endless reflective support for whatever the individual's subjective distress is, because we've moved away from any kind of metaphysics. We've moved into what I call radical contextualism, where anybody's emotional perturbation is taken as a grounds for an argument. We're getting a little bit broader now than cluster B, but the society in which we're living right now is moving toward radical subjectivity, where you can't question emotional perturbation. Well, who has the most powerful emotional perturbations? Cluster B.
1: Absolutely. And there's also a, there's also a conversation and a debate about, know, can you describe this? The construct, it's not in the DSM, but it's widely used. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: Yes, and people, sorry to cut you off there, but as an interjection, the modern therapist commonly has the following distortion. They believe that someone is either uh, traumatized or has borderline personality.
1: No, people don't
0: traumatize and also have borderline personality.
1: I would say the vast majority of people with borderline personality disorder got it from trauma, right?
0: You know that and I know that, but oddly, the modern cadre of therapists who operate in what I would call the supportive paradigm, they mm -hmm. tend to view those things
1: as almost mutually exclusive. That is that's so bizarre to me. I don't know where to go with that. It just it's the opposite of right. <laughs> sounds- yes, I, yes. It, it,
0: it's so odd, isn't it? When you think about it, and yeah. one of the reasons I think that they do this is it's very difficult to hold someone who has been traumatized accountable in a personal agency sense for how they're now carrying forward the interpersonal aspects of that trauma. It's yes. uncomfortable to do, to say, you've been through something horrible and horrific, and I feel for you so much, but you're also doing this. This is how this affected you, and
1: it's really quite ugly. Yes, it's ugly to you. It's ugly to the people around you. There's this There's this conversation about if you accept the construct of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which I do, my mind may change over time, but that that is something we use to describe people who have developmental trauma, childhood trauma, instead of, it's not a one-off event like classic PTSD, being in the Twin Towers when they were struck or being on the battlefield. It's a prolonged developmental period of lack of safety and stability, being unable to trust your caregivers. The the trauma is long, it's compounded, and while you're going through it, there's no reasonable chance of escape, which is what describes a child um, who, who was brought up, for example, the way I was by a mother who, for Government working purposes, I will say, has equal helping of borderline and narcissistic personality disorders. But there's a and I think about this, but there's a, for example, with borderline personality disorder. And, and this means something to me in I in, may as well be candid about this. I have borderline and histrionic traits that I have to monitor. And I suspect I cannot know this. Um, I was never diagnosed with a personality disorder. Uh, but I suspect that in my late teens and into my twenties, I may well have qualified for a borderline or histrionic personality disorder diagnosis, and and, and I, I still had. I'm a highly emotionally sensitive person. Um, I'm an anxiety ridden person. I ha- I'm very neurotic. It's just a fact. Well, I'm a person who would
0: acknowledge those features and be a great candidate for therapy. And your mother gave you your first
1: psychiatric training program. I'm sure. Uh, that bad. Yes. There, I think there is a difference. I I think there is a difference of degree. I think there's a line that people can cross into when it goes and CPTSD by itself can be utterly disabling and destructive. Um, But I think there is a line that crosses over where it starts to look more like really borderline personality disorder, harder to treat, more ingrained, more severe. What do you think about that?
0: If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money, and so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com. I think you're right again. Complex PTSD. People should look more at that severe strain over time that causes significant issues with anxiety internally as well as interpersonally. And you could call this like a protracted relational trauma. I think that's what CPTSD is often in the context of of an abusive parent. And from listening to you, you, you went through both where you had events with your mother that were tremendously straining and some even acutely traumatic if I, I'm sure if I recall that accurately but also oh, yeah. obviously the severe strain that goes with having a relationship with such a person over time amidst your development there's both things are it can be true simultaneously and I think one of my pushbacks on CPTSD yeah. is that it's being misused by the again the modern overly supportive Therapists, All psychotherapies, if intended properly, are supportive in the sense that they're trying to emancipate the person from their suffering. And that comes through taking a really sober look at the way in which we're behaving. But the modern psychotherapist often takes CPTSD to mean that any amount of subjective distress is taken to be somehow traumatic uh, on face value. So I, I think the term is being overused. But yes, it, it certainly is important to think about. It's not like we just have the only people who are traumatized have one event and that's like a wartime tragedy a grenade situation and now they're traumatized. Now, you're right, and people should keep in mind that trauma develops over time in contexts like being with a very abusive parent, even in the absence of any significant single event. You're right about that entirely. Josh, in terms of where society is headed, Right now, narcissism is ascendant. Cluster B
1: is, as you say, the new normal. Yeah, that it's very dark. The reason the the show, my weekly show disaffected that uh, I say my show, but it's a two man operation. My friend and and producer and business partner, Kevin Hurley, uh, usually stays behind the camera. But it's our joint project. The thesis behind the show is that. As in the home, so in society. And the, the quick encapsulated version of how I got to that, what, I believe we're living in a cluster B society where cluster B rules, relational rules, are normalized and praised as good. And I came to that conclusion when I, find, when I discovered what cluster B was and when I saw my mother for who she really was for the first time in my life at the age of 41, which was almost eight years ago now. G- My childhood was, and I'm one of millions, my story is not unique. It's, it's severe, but it's, there are people with far more severe backgrounds than I had, right? But my childhood growing up, if, if you, if people want to know what kind of parent my mother was, imagine Joan Crawford from the movie, Mommy Dearest, crossed with the fanatical mother, Margaret White in the horror movie, Carrie from 1976. My mother was an, is an amalgamation of these two kinds of people. We weren't rich. She wasn't famous. We were trailer park poor, but th- that is how I was raised. And my stepfather was a violent, um, physically abusive to, to me and to my mother. He tried to murder my mother in front of his children. Yes. He was also pedophilic. And so it's classic, right? There's nothing in my background that, that is unpredictable or that you don't see millions of other kids who grow up traumatized, but. It took me until I was 41 years old to really understand who my mother was and then as painfully who I had become as a result of this. And like many people, I didn't bring friends over to my house because I thought I can't explain to them. My mother is crazy. I can't explain why she flies off the handle if you put a glass on the wrong side of the counter. My mother is crazy in a unique way that is Josh's mom crazy. And no other person on earth is like my mother. I will never be able to explain it. So I simply can't have people over and I can't tell the truth, right? That, but that became, that, be, that lie became a lie that I internalized and that I told myself. And for many years in my earlier adult life, I had friends observing from the outside who said things to me like, Josh, your mother is exploiting you. You don't have to do what she says. What she's asking for is not reasonable for a mother to ask for from a son. She's abusing you. And I reacted very emotionally violently. I would yell things like, my mother is a saint. How dare you? I had to create this character in my mind that my mother, who was a battered wife, had done everything she could to keep her kids safe. And the reality was that she didn't. She married my own father. I never met. He walked away before I was born. And my mother married my stepfather when I was about four years old and had my brother and sister by him. And that lasted five or six years, five or six very violent years. And the reality is that my mother knew, my mother knew what he was doing to me. She admitted it at times. She said, I'd see the bruises on you when I gave you a bath. This went on for years. There was also, although it didn't affect me directly this way, there was, a, he was also sexually abusive to some of his other children. I believe my mother also knew that, although she denies that. And the fact is that she did not, as she said, move heaven and earth to keep you kids safe. She only kicked him out of the house the night he tried to murder her. It had to be her own life that was in jeopardy that moved her sufficiently to expel him from a home. She did not care enough to protect her children from him. I moved out. I was put into an institution, a boy's home, a glorified orphanage for delinquent boys because I was suicidal at 12 or 13. And, and was having extraordinary fights with my mother. Uh, that, and it's probably best of two bad choices. It was good that I was taken out of the home because I believe it could have ended in some very serious violence between me and my mother if that did not happen. But I made a life away from my mother for decades after that. I'd go home at Christmas, talk on the phone, things like that, but I never lived in the same place. And, after years of paying off back bills, trying to make sure she wasn't homeless, negotiating with her landlords when she was getting kicked out constantly, tens of thousands of dollars, I finally said, I'm the eldest. My mother's getting older. I'm going to have to take care of her. I bought a house that I couldn't afford to give her a place that she could pay a cheap rent, et cetera. The whole thing blew up within two years. This was the time I was 39 to 41 years old. And it I couldn't deny anymore that my mother was... Colloquially, fucking nuts, and unbearable, and untrustworthy, and dangerous, and it was ruining my life. Literally, I, I know, I man, that ruined my life. No, this no, is sorry, it, really is it really is true. It really is true. It was jeopardizing my job. I was, I'd been an alcoholic for a long time. I'm sober now, but I was drinking myself to death, and I was on the verge of checking myself into the psych unit. And it was jeopardizing uh, my rental from sane tenants on the other side of the house, just everything's going to hell. And she was abusing her new husband. And anyway, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But what happened was, at first I thought, wow, she's getting dementia, she's getting Alzheimer's disease. No, it wasn't that. My sister called me one day and she said, Josh, our mother is not demented. Our mother has a personality disorder. She's a narcissist. And I think you need to do some reading about this. So it was my sister, really, who figured it out first. And I did. And I immediately, Lucas, all the crazy, disconnected, whimsically awful things of my childhood were no longer whimsically awful. And they were all slotting. It was like ka like a sorting machine. Chunk, chunk, chunk. That taxonomy started putting everything in order. And I realized there is a name for this. There is an etiology. There is a taxonomy. There is a way to understand this kind of mind structure. It is not just my mother. It's a personality syndrome. And I was, it was, if I were a religious person, I would call it an awakening. It changed my entire perspective. Sure. And it was also... The first, and so the denouement to that story is, unfortunately, I had to go to court and evict my mother. It was I had to put her out of my life permanently. And I had to use the legal system to do it because she wouldn't go. And I did. But what I didn't know at that point, how big an awakening I was going to have, because that also was the first step on the road to me waking up from being woke, from being a hardcore leftist, from, I've gone from being as, about as liberal as you possibly could be. I would have called myself a male feminist. I started doing actual political gay rights activism at 16 years old. I went to a liberal arts college that I now realize spent four years trying to turn me into a a Marxist through continental philosophy and Foucault and Marcuse and poison, absolute poison, moral poison, intellectual poison. I've gone from being that person to being a conservative. I did not know that was going to happen, but I don't think I'm alone. I think there is a really strong connection between being in a family or a world of trauma and cluster B and becoming a hardcore leftist who believes that the state should guarantee basic income, that women are living under the yoke of patriarchy, that men are the source of all evil in the world, that we are unforgivably racist every single moment that we are not Beating ourselves and wearing a hair shirt as white people. We are doing active damage that is shortening the lives of black people. And everything I'm saying is not an exaggeration. It is not an exaggeration. It is
0: not. And and one of the central
1: uh, strains of all of those examples you just
0: provided is it is the modern concept of the individual as a passive recipient of contextual misfortune, never an agent. That's right. And that has represented the shift in psychology treatment as well and in the, in, in the field broadly, is the movement away from the self, an agent, an active agent in the world, to a passive, contextually drawn, state-dependent character. That has been what I call radical contextualism. And so there are even colleagues I have who would say that trauma is simply overwhelming emotional experience. So under that rubric, a five-year-old who's having a temper tantrum could be considered undergoing trauma. And there are people who consider that the notion of a self is illusory, that you ju- just have self-states. I would uh, argue and rejoin that if the self is an illusion, it's a goddamn important one. Right? Because <laughs> how, yes. right. how, how else can oh, you How do else do? are we to live? Yes, exactly. And, and Josh, also I want to re- return to the story of your mother and your upbringing. One of the things that I, I think is so important Uh, For people who have undergone that kind of developmental line and undergone what you've undergone is that they need to tell the story out loud to others over and over. It must be done.
1: Yeah. And and I'm feeling a little sheepish, honestly, because I have told the story over and I do realize that. No,
0: I, I think you might miss my intention. I actually think that it is vital if you've undergone a situation, a relationship with a caregiver like you have. I shouldn't say caregiver. It's a misnomer for your mother. But you must repeat the story out loud with others so you can continue to remember the reality.
1: I would... Yeah. <laughs> hmm. You get right to the heart of some things. For people who did not come from abusive homes it is difficult for them to intuit on a direct level what it is like to grow up with a jailer and a prison warden for a mother or a father but when you are born and raised this way and you know nothing else you don't know anything else right. You don't understand that it's abnormal
0: it becomes and, familiar. It's almost comforting in its familiarity, isn't
1: it? Yes. And I talk, I do. There is, of course, I'm not going to lie. There are pers- there are personal motivations of personal exorcism that motivate me to tell the story. Yes, of course. I realize that leaves me open to accusations that I'm you're just using your show and talking in public to therapize yourself. What a pathetic blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know. I know. But also, I want people to have the awakening that I had because there are millions of people out there who are trapped. They do not understand why they feel the way they do. And they do not understand what their parents have done to them. And it is the for years, decades, my unconscious knew the truth. My conscious mind did not. I, most of my dreams for decades were nightmares, and they heavily featured my mother as the villain. She would show up at my job and get me fired. She would show up at my college graduation and then walk up onto the stage and tell the president that I was a high school dropout and a fraud and my diploma would be taken away from me. Any... Any number of scenarios in which my mother publicly humiliated me and brought me low and took everything from me, took my friends, took my reputation, took my possessions, took my money, took my degree. This went on for, I, just, I had these dreams for decades and decades. Why the hell what, would I not have had them? I realized at 41 that my mind was trying to tell me the truth all of my life. And the truth was, the most difficult thing I have ever experienced, and I've been through a lot of very difficult things. This was, I had a heart attack at 36, and I thought that was the scariest thing that was ever going to happen to me. No, it wasn't. I'd have 10 coronaries voluntarily again to avoid the pain of what I had to go through with divorcing my mother. That's what it is, it's a divorce. I realized that my mother did not love me. She, does not love her children because she is psychologically incapable of the emotion called love. It was horrifying. And yes, listeners, I am suggesting that if you have a parent that rises to the level of pathology like my mother, I am suggesting the strong possibility that, that your parents don't love you either. And I don't say that glibly. I, I say it because I believe that it is often the truth and it is a necessary truth to face. And although I thought it would kill me, it did not. I survived it. Now, what does this have to do with what's going on in society? When I woke up to who my mother really was, I looked around me and I said, oh my God, it's not just my family home. It's the world, the government, the media, the medical field, the psychiatric field. As woke became more and more compulsory. Yeah. And then painfully, I realized that I had recreated and surrounded myself, my social circle, my friends, my political beliefs were all driven by cluster B dynamics.
0: Not everybody,
1: of course, but a great deal of the people that I had voluntarily surrounded myself with were cluster Bs. And I thought they were great friends, right? This whole process cost me most of what I had. I say I lost my mother, but I didn't. I lost the illusion of having a mother, but I lost almost all of my friends my entire social circle, with the exception of a very small handful of people rejected me and I became the great Satan to them. Eventually, year, years later, just, just over a year ago now, I lost my job. I lost my 20-year career for speaking out the way I do about these things. I was working for a leftist nonprofit. My, you really have become a phoenix, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, with, with
0: really round two yeah. together wings. I don't think so. I think you thorn out again.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I think what you bring up is so important, and it's mirroring a question that I have. As would the child growing up with a an abusive, severely cluster B parent who takes on responsibility for the parent's abuse. That's yes. He, oh, he, yes. I don't need to tell you that. Do you think society is becoming inherently masochistic in response yes. to the emergence of cluster B?
1: Yes, sir, I do. I believe that we, all of us, we citizens are in a, an abusive parent-child relationship in a cluster B relationship with our government and the media and the tastemakers and the elites. We have been badly misled by them, but we, this is a partnership. This is a dance. Okay. Mm, Only we can extract ourselves. Only you can save yourself. Really? Because these people are not going to, they're not going to stop. I do believe that at the highest levels of government, they are. it is chock a block with clinical psychopaths, narcissistic psychopaths, dark tetrad people. And their most useful foot soldiers, we can use many different names for these people. We can call them codependents. We can call them enablers. We can call them flying monkeys. The people who go forth and do the bidding of the narcissist, their most useful foot soldiers are those who are psychologically inclined to the borderline and histrionic. Personality structure, and we don't even realize that we are in this abusive dynamic. I think some people are starting to wake up to it. Whether enough of them will, I I don't know. What? And I'm going to get I'm going to get a little bit religious here. But as an amateur, I am. I've long been a non-believer. I used to be one of those obnoxious new atheists. Now I'm exploring the idea of God. I have decided on nothing. I know nothing. I'm simply, I'm exploring Satan is an apt metaphor, an apt character for the narcissist and the sociopath, because the Satan in the Christian tradition is the great deceiver. He is the liar. cluster B is about lying. It is about inverting the truth. It is. It's expressed in Isaiah 520, woe unto he who substitutes dark for light and bitter for sweet. The person who comes to you and says, the, the diversity trainer who says, you white people come suffer yourselves unto me, white people, and I will show you your sin and I will show you how to cleanse yourself of your sin. And you must do this by masochistically taking on every wicked characteristic and every calumny that i project onto you
0: yes they actually had images do you remember the story of the white people just following george floyd who were literally on their hands and knees washing the feet of the antifa people around them
1: absolutely and not only have we become masochists but this is psychosexual this is not just emotional there it is sexual as well I cannot get into great detail. I haven't gone that far. I may not be clever enough to really figure this all out. But there is a reason why this looks like a BDSM sexual practice. It's because it is a BDSM sexual practice. Or another way of describing it is to say the substrate on which those things rests is common. Yeah, it is at least
0: gratifying to some extent somehow. You're absolutely right about that. Any idea how people can resist their masochistic urge to subordinate themselves to the either whimsical or sadistic
1: urges of others? It has to start with being able to recognize the truth. That's not a very satisfying answer because it's complicated and there are all sorts of different ways, depending on the context, that we have to do work to do that. One of the ways that that you have done that is to
0: remember the story of your mother and your upbringing, and you have codified the various pathologies that she demonstrated to you in a sort of radar system. And that's what you've got for your interaction with society at this point. I don't know if that's something
1: you would prescribe to others. I, I, this is what I meant when I talked about intuition. Wonderful, if I could recommend, I think every single person should read the book called The Gift of Fear. And the author is a man named Gavin De Becker: Gift of Fear." Gavin De Becker is now a world-famous security consultant, quite rich. He's protected some of the most famous people in the world politically and in Hollywood. He came from an extraordinarily deranged household with an insane cluster- B mother who killed his father, many other very traumatic events in his life. And he teaches people about intuition in that book. And I learned an incredible amount from it. Your gut will tell you true things about people. It may not be fine grained, but it will, that feeling you get when, okay. I'll give a, I'll give an example. You can, people can extrapolate from this. They will have had something in their own lives that felt like this. I used to give a lot of public talks in my career. I would go around the country working for my nonprofit and giving public talks, and I was—I I had a lot of fun doing it. I like to talk in public. Obviously, I'm doing it with you right now. And one one day, after the talk was done, I was a pretty popular speaker, uh, so a lot of people wanted to talk to me afterward, and I enjoyed that as well. Uh, and when I got done with that, I walked out to the parking lot. And I saw a woman driving in a car around the parking lot, and I'd seen her in the audience, and she was wrapped. She was hanging on every single word that I said, and she was very wide-eyed. She's, right? And something was pinging in me. I could see her in the audience, and I just had, i, I did nothing that rose to the conscious level, but I was just a little turned, right? I was aware of her. Her car comes up to me in the parking lot, and she's got that big, wide, open eyes with a big, manic grin. Oh, I'm so glad I came to your talk, Joshua. You are the most wonderful thing ever. And I just, oh, I'm so glad I got a chance to talk to you. And she's moving the car over, and my heart is going. I extracted myself from that situation. I begged off and I said, I'm so sorry. I have to get back to the airport. Thank you very much for your kindness. Thank you for coming to the talk. My intuition, I don't know this woman, but I know that I was feeling something true about her. I would almost guarantee that woman is a cluster B and that she was trying to get her hands into me and she was going to become my new best friend and my new favorite pen pal. sort of very misery Annie Wilkes effect. Think of that with the, the, you're going to meet women like that. You're going to meet men who are charming and seductive and silver-tongued and also reptilian. There's something cold. There's something under the surface. When your intuition gives you a feeling of uncomfortability, listen to it. It's almost always telling you the truth. And your
0: message here is so medicinal against what has been told to the American public, which is that they should somehow deny their instincts and reactions. They should just walk down a dangerous urban street and pretend that it's just a a hipster area because there's a beer garden with fake grass,
1: you know? Absolutely, exactly. You perfectly scaled it up from the individual encounter up to uh, something more public. It is the same thing that gets white people, and I've done this. I remember doing, I can remember an incident for 15 years ago I'm so embarrassed about when I think about it in my mind. Um, it's the same thing that, that, that gets liberal white people to say, there's nothing dangerous about this neighborhood just because most people here are people of color. That's just racism. No. You did no. the voice. Thank you. So, I was hoping you would do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I can do that voice. I can also do the really covert narcissist one, where everyone is in up speak and direct statements are phrased as questions. The think you one. Thank you. Thanks, Josh.
0: <laughs> it is that kind of caricature that I think I hope people catch on
1: to. It's, it's real. That it, is it is caricature. What I do is caricature mm-hmm. when I do this stuff. But but. Like a caricature drawing, you can immediately recognize the celebrity that it is depicting, right? Because what it is it is exaggerating their distinctive features. And that is a really good, simple way to get people to intuitively understand what you're talking about. That's right.
0: It is also it's a way of storytelling something very broad and distilling it into a micro moment where everyone understands exactly what you're getting at. Here's the cloak, and we're going to cut right through it and show you that this is an ingratiating, meager posturing cover for something much more malignant. And that's what you're getting across
1: with your characters. And, And this is important. I think the kind of malignancy, the cluster B malignancy, the moral insanity, the character disorder that has infected and shaped our public personality and our body politic is extraordinarily feminine. We are in the rise of the toxic feminine if you will. Social uh, media
0: perhaps has been, could be characterized as a mechanism for feminine aggression, where it's the discharge of aggression through character assassination, whereas there's not the capacity for masculine aggression, which is, it operates in 3D. Uh, men yeah. discharge aggression physically. So yes, um, re- removing the medium of the physical, all of a sudden levels the playing field for women to compete in aggression with men and to even amplify it.
1: But uh, it I is because- right about that. It's become, so, but the feminization of the way we deal with each other has been taken on by men as well. So it's not, I'm not saying, oh, it's all women's fault. I'm saying that the feminine, the excess of the yes, feminine right. is out of balance with the masculine and men. And I, I know this because I used to be one. I was a male feminist. You want Cluster B? You want to see Cluster B in the wild? Join a radical feminist group. Okay. Um, i take your word for it. Yeah. But This has become normalized to the point where we now, Barack Obama is an example of this. He's just, I happen to keep using him. He's certainly not the only one, but it's a. Let's say we are
0: uncontained. If the masculine could be thought of as a containing element broadly, and the feminine could be broadly and grossly thought of as uncontained emotional vibration. And I know some people will balk at that, but you could really think of it that way if you consider child raising and child rearing from a millennia ago where the, the feminine imperative is to have an emotional reaction in the, a severe emotional reaction at the perception of threat. That's how females were geared biologically to protect the audience. Yes. And to protect themselves. Yes. This is not a criticism of women. It is simply an evolutionary adaptation. Where if they heard something outside of the village or cave or hut that that long ago, it's best to freak out about it, to protect yourself and your offspring. And it is the man's job in that Evo psych setup to walk outside and think about what is happening. The the thoughtfulness there is the containment and the emotional vibration is the reaction from the feminine. And we seem to be unfettered in our emotional vibration these days.
1: Yes. And that has, be- that has become socially praised and morally elevated. That, that is the right way. If you are a caring person, this is how you relate to people. Mm-hmm. And it brings up the, the archetype of the devouring mother. That's if right. Our compassion, our sense of I want to protect my brood mm-hmm. is, can be and has been hijacked to nefarious purposes. An excess of sympathy and compassion is as toxic and deadly as a complete lack of empathy. That's
0: right. That's right. Josh, I'm running up against a a time stop here, but I
1: could talk to you all day and I've so enjoyed this. We should do Um, this again because I I would like to have you on Disaffected because there are a number of questions. I'd I'd like to have, I spoke a lot here, but there's a lot I'd like to hear from you, um, especially about your work in your field. I'd be happy to
0: come on. And I think everyone was happy to hear you talk a great deal. It's just a, it's a delight to hear you keep up everything that you're doing on Disaffected and you're welcome back at Real Clear. I guess I'm on Disaffected simultaneously now, to the extent that we're both using this. It's just been a delight. And I encourage everyone to go to Disaffected podcast and, and listen to your episodes.
1: Thank you, Lucas. I really appreciate it.